chapter 5. The pattern. We wrapped up chapter 4 with the purpose behind the Ten Commandments. They are the foundation for restoring our relationship with God. With those commandments, we can understand what God wants from us, not to kill, steal, murder, covet, etc. But we also know it's impossible to follow the law perfectly, so what now? The Bible tells us we need to repent of our sins. We have to put our old ways behind us and flee evil. We're going to travel about 700 years forward from the time the commandments were given. A lot of important events unfolded in the meantime, including Joshua fighting the Battle of Jericho, David fighting Goliath, the nation of Israel being established as the people of God, and judges and prophets arriving. If none of those events sound familiar, don't worry about it. It's just historical context that may be helpful to readers who are familiar with some or all of those stories. The only thing that you'll want to know is that by this point in time, the people of God knew they were sinners, and they definitely knew the law. For a time, the people embraced the law, see the book of Exodus. God's message to his people could be summed up like, I love you, you love me. If you follow me, I will bless you, I will protect you, and I will provide for you. The people signed up and went all in because of course they wanted God's blessings. And they would follow the law for a generation or two, but then they would rebel. And whenever they rebelled, God intervened with some sort of discipline withholding rain, make someone or some group captive, or something like that. After he intervened, the people would repent, take responsibility for, and turn away from their sin. Once they repented and made restitution, their relationship with God was restored. Israel fell into a pattern of rebellion, repentance, and restoration. This behavior pattern also mimics the behavior patterns of human nature. Remember, we do not insert ourselves interchangeably with Israel into the Bible, as that would be a misreading, but that doesn't mean we can't also recognize ourselves in these patterns either. On the contrary, the nation of Israel's pattern of rebellion, repentance, and restoration foreshadows our relationship pattern with God today. Rebellion. God often sent a prophet whenever the people rebelled. A prophet was someone with whom God would interact in a supernatural way, think Moses and the burning bush. The prophet would then more or less relay whatever message God wanted the people to hear. Isaiah was one such prophet, and he's majorly important. He's so important he has his own book in the Bible. We'll pick up in the Bible with one of the people's rebellions from the book of Isaiah. The people had been worshiping idols, putting pagan symbols on their doors, ignoring the oppressed, and ignoring the law altogether, really. They were breaking commandments left and right. They knew right from wrong. They just didn't care because they were busy doing whatever they wanted. Let's walk into the middle of the story when God was holding the people accountable for their sin and rebellion against him. In Isaiah 59, 2, God says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. God was straightforward with them. He didn't walk away or give up on them. They made the decision to rebel. They sinned, and they knowingly and willingly broke their relationship with God. The idea of God hiding his face is an important concept. Maybe you have heard someone say something like, may God look down on you, which is basically another way of asking God to bless or favor someone. But if God hides his face or looks away, he is doing the exact opposite of blessing or favoring. For example, if I give my kids a curfew and one of them comes home late, that child no longer gets to drive my car. That's my way of saying, I liked giving you this privilege, but you made the choice to rebel. For that reason, I'm taking away the privilege of the car. God is doing the same thing to the nation of Israel. He doesn't get fed up. 
He intervenes. His interventions were designed to help Israel so they wouldn't lose sight of him and the law. The forms of discipline he used were his ways of reminding his people, Listen, you cannot keep going this way because you will lose sight of me and the wages of sin is death. If you keep walking away from me, you will wind up separated from me in hell, so I'm intervening with the hope that you'll snap out of it. Repentance Fortunately, God's people always saw the error of their ways. They would do the right thing and they would repent. In Isaiah 59:12, the people responded to God by saying, For our offenses are many in your sight, and our sins testify against us. They took responsibility for their sin, and they recognized they had violated the law and the holiness of God. They didn't argue, they acknowledged their guilt. The passage continues, Our offenses are ever with us, and we acknowledge our iniquities. They were telling God, We agree, we accept responsibility. Everything you said, yup, that's us. They didn't feign innocence. They acknowledged they had undermined God's word, God's people, and the leaders he put over them and instead turned their backs on him. Then they repented. Repentance is a key component to having a relationship with God, and the Bible talks about it a lot, and I mean a lot. Let's camp here because I think repentance is generally misunderstood. Many of us just can't seem to get our heads around it. I suspect it has to do with how we are raised. More specifically, we are raised in a culture that doesn't understand repentance. Let's start by clarifying what repentance is not. Repentance is not an apology. Our culture tends to handle the subject of repentance with apologies. People apologize for wrongdoing all the time. A politician or a celebrity gets into trouble for some sort of scandalous activity and they tweet, I sincerely want to apologize for, that's how we've been taught to interact with each other whenever we've done something wrong. Parents say, you go over there and you apologize to your brother. We apologize. We say, sorry. The other person says, it's okay. Both parties are lying, or at the very least, we're not being honest with each other or ourselves. You're not really sorry, and it's not really okay. We think that's what it means to make things right and to repent, but repentance is not an apology. Repentance is not feeling guilty. I remember an incident between two of my sons years ago. When they were little, they shall remain nameless, but they know who they are. The five-year-old was on the front porch of the house surveying the neighborhood and ensuring everything was in order. Meanwhile, the three-year-old found his way down into the basement of the house, picked up an aluminum baseball bat, walked back upstairs, meandered his way through the kitchen and the dining room and out onto the porch, where he promptly swung the bat and hit his brother in the back of the head. I rushed in and asked our five-year-old, are you bleeding? Do you have a wound? He was screaming, and I was examining his head. Once I was fairly confident he was going to be okay, I turned to our three-year-old who had been standing there the whole time bat still in hand and asked him, did you just hit your brother? Yes, daddy, he replied with a hint of pride in his voice. You hurt him, I exclaimed. Did you know that would hurt your brother? Yes, daddy. You could have knocked him out. Are you sorry for hurting him? Yes, daddy. Okay. I took a deep breath, relieved that the ordeal was coming to an end. I said, give me the bat. No, daddy. You hurt your brother and you said you were sorry. Give me the bat. No, daddy. My three-year-old clearly wasn't sorry or feeling guilty, and his bogus apology certainly didn't make hitting his brother in the head with a baseball bat okay. In no way did he repent. 
Repentance does not shirk responsibility for one's actions. We don't just acknowledge the offense for which we've been caught this one rebellion or this one revolt. We acknowledge all of our sins. Because we are human and sinning is generally what we do, we have all been caught having sinned against someone else at one time or another. Whenever this has happened, if you dragged someone else into your sin or attempted to defend your actions regardless of how innocently you have not repented. Feigned or insincere repentance often sounds something like, I should not have gotten out of my car and punched the driver of the vehicle in front of me. I was wrong. If he hadn't been driving like an idiot, I wouldn't have hit him, your honor. Now that I'm a grown man, I have come to understand that I have anger issues. You see, my dad had a really bad temper. Nope, that's not repentance. Mr. Road Rage may have had a poor role model when it came to expressing anger, but his dad certainly didn't make him punch another person. It is, of course, important to understand and work through any wounds from your childhood, especially when it comes to making changes. However, we are each responsible for our own actions. Repentance does not draw moral equivalencies. This tendency pops up in divorces all too often. I hear people say things like, I know that I had an affair and I really shouldn't have done that. I was feeling lonely because we were constantly arguing over finances. She's terrible with money and it stressed me out, so I sought companionship elsewhere. She's as much to blame for this relationship breaking down as I am. No, she's not. That's a moral equivalency, and it's ridiculous. Marital stressors do not justify extramarital affairs. He messed up, and I messed up, so it's the same thing we're even. It is not the same thing, and no one is even. That's not repentance. Whenever you hear that in your heart, mind, or from someone else, it is not repentance. Attempts to get even or equivocate wrongdoing are simply maneuvers to evade responsibility and downplay rebellion from God. Repentance does not bargain. Our culture tends to negotiate a truce rather than truly repent. Let's imagine a husband and wife having an argument and the husband punches a hole in the wall. She's upset and he's obviously upset. He turns to her and says, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have punched the wall and I think I know how to solve this. When I get home from a tough day at work, you have to let me settle in and chill out for 20 minutes before coming at me with questions and chores. Because when you do that, it sets me off. So if you'll start giving me time to unwind, I won't lose my temper when I come home. He didn't repent. He negotiated a truce. Nobody won. A repentant person walks away from the sin. They reject the sin. Jesus said, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out, Mark 9:47. He didn't mean that literally, of course. He meant that if you know something is causing you to sin, remove that thing from your life, completely, totally abandon it. The husband who punched a hole in the wall, for example, needs to abandon his rage instead of passing blame on his wife. Repentance does not pick and choose the rules one will live by. A person who is repentant does not negotiate with the word of God. A person who is truly repentant wants to know more about the Bible and what it has to say. Ephesians 5.3 says, Among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity. Not even a hint. A repentant individual who struggles with pornography and who wants to recover from it does not read this verse and think, well, I mean, there are different types of porn. I'll stop watching the hardcore stuff, but I'd have to get rid of my phone altogether to eliminate my exposure to sex. I'd have to stop watching Game of Thrones. Not even a hint is impossible and unrealistic in our day and age. 
That is not repentance. That's an excuse, and it's a false rationalization. A person who struggles with pornography and who is truly repentant reads Ephesians 5.3 and thinks, not even a hint, wow, how can I do that? Teach me more. Empower me. I'm going to need to ask my spiritual leaders to coach me up. Repentance requires not only a desire to align your heart with God, but it also requires a genuine effort to seek help and make a change regardless of what it may take. Repentance is always a total acceptance of the authority of the Bible. Repentance does not avoid consequences. Imagine the following conversation between a father and his son. Father, hey man, I saw you wrote that term paper in record time. Son, yeah. Father, did you really write that? Son, I wrote portions. Father, what do you mean portions? Did you go to a website and buy a term paper or pay for someone to write it for you or use AI? Son, well, actually, yeah, I did. Father, doesn't your syllabus specifically state that plagiarism results in automatic failure? Son, yeah, I know it was wrong, and I know I shouldn't have done it. Father, you're right. You should tell your professor you plagiarized the paper and take the F. Son, what? Oh, flunk, and I paid for that class already. Father, I know, and those are the consequences of your sin. I bet you won't do that twice. That professor might even respect you for telling the truth. Son, I'm not doing that, man. Father, well, then you're not repentant. The son in this situation is not repentant because he is unwilling to engage with the weight of his offense. He's avoiding the consequences. True repentance requires us to embrace consequences no matter how painful or uncomfortable they may be. Repentance does not forsake restitution. The story of Zacchaeus from the New Testament found in Luke 19 is a perfect example of what it means to make restitution. Zacchaeus was basically an IRS agent who scammed everybody of their money some things are timeless. Jesus confronted Zacchaeus, who in turn repented and accepted Christ as his savior. Zacchaeus' response in modern language would sound like this, I was wrong, I've sinned, I'm going to give half of my money to the poor and to the people I stole from. I'm going to pay back fourfold. I'm going to make things right from this ill-gotten gain. He probably couldn't square up every nickel and dime with everybody, but a repentant heart is willing to do whatever it takes to make things right because repentance makes restitution. Repentance does not demand God's favor. A repentant person never demands forgiveness. They don't say things like, listen, I know I stole $50 from you that one time, but we've been roommates for three years. How long are you going to hold that over my head? A repentant person says, I did it. It's my responsibility, and my forgiveness relies on your mercy and God's mercy. I never demand grace be given to me, and I'm in disbelief whenever it is. Repentance does not fade with time. The process of repentance is detailed in the New Testament book of James, but perhaps the best illustration of this in our culture is the recovery community Alcoholics Anonymous, Narcotics Anonymous, and every other support group. The first step for an alcoholic is to admit that they are, in fact, an alcoholic. Then they confess what they have done, writes their wrongs, confesses to somebody else, and goes the whole nine yards. They remodel their entire lifestyle to avoid going back to the sin. They avoid alcohol at all costs and as best as they can, and they attend meetings. 
They make new friends who don't drink. They remove alcohol from their home. They avoid anything that triggers their impulse to use alcohol. And over time, that repentance illustrates itself. Imagine if someone said, I had an affair and my wife forgave me. To rebuild trust, I deleted the woman's contact numbers. I changed offices and quit my job to sever all ties. I got a new phone. I erased all references to her on social media. I make sure to travel with a friend. I want nothing to do with the life that led me to that disastrous sin. And over time, my wife will be able to see that I'm truly repentant and that I've changed. Repentance leads to life transformation. Israel would repent and get rid of all the false idols and gods and break down whatever statues or altars they had built for them. They would reinstitute all the processes of worship that God taught them in the books of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. They would put all that back into place because they would realize their sin and ask themselves, what have we done? We repent and acknowledge all of it, and that builds a new structure for our lives. Restoration. Repentance leads to restoration, and it is a fascinating process. In our culture, we say sorry, and then we're done. We wash our hands of it. Sorry is not a biblical process of repentance. On the path to restoration, God requires a payment for sin because repentance is not without consequence. A payment has to be made. In the Bible, the term for that payment is the word atonement, which means payment or restoration. Atonement has to be made because God would say, okay, Israel, I love you, but rebellion is not a sorry kind of thing. You rebelled against a holy, righteous creator, your God. The Bible says that when you rebel, the wages or the result of sin is death, Romans 6.23. This is not a sorry. This is your soul at stake. This is hell at stake. In your sin, you have sacrificed your spiritual life. It's a disaster that you rebelled against God, and that does not warrant a simple, it's okay, from Him. There has to be atonement. There has to be payment. There has to be restitution. In the Old Testament, God instituted a system of sacrifices to show people just how big of a deal their rebellion was. Once a year, the Israelites would come before God on what was called the Day of Atonement to make atonement for their sins. Leviticus 17.11 reads, For the life of a creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. Our blood is our life. If you lose your blood, you lose your life. What God is saying in Leviticus 17.11 is that it takes a life to atone for a life, or in other words, you have sacrificed your spiritual life and your sin, and the only way to purchase that back and make atonement is to offer the blood the life in exchange for the life lost. It takes a life to purchase a life, so God had the Israelites make a sacrifice, preferably a lamb. In the ancient world, the Israelites' livestock was their most valuable asset. The Israelites would take their very best lamb, a spotless lamb, to the temple on the Day of Atonement, and the priest would take that lamb and slit its throat. The blood of the lamb would then be sprinkled onto the altar of atonement. The lifeblood of the lamb was given because its blood was the atonement for the Israelites' sin. It took a life to purchase a life. God told Israel, you will do this because you rebelled on purpose. You must realize that you have destroyed your soul and you have destroyed the people around you. The blood of the lamb must be shed to atone for your sin. The repentant Israelites responded, God, you are so good and merciful. We'll do anything to be close with you again. We repent. We give you the best of what we have in this spotless lamb. Once atonement was made, restoration occurred. 
sins were forgiven, God's face turned back to them. He interacted freely with them again because the Lamb's life was given to purchase a life. We should all see ourselves in Israel, but again, don't just interchange yourself with Israel or your theology will get wacky. But you can definitely look at Israel and think, oh, the pattern of the nation is the pattern of the person. God, I never want to do that again. I have rebelled and I repent. But 37 minutes later, you've rebelled again. What do you do? Awareness. We have to be aware of this rebel repent restore pattern in order to recognize that we need to be dependent upon God. Whenever I catch myself sinning, I immediately want to repent. I want to clear out that barrier, that noise between me and God. I know that I'm a sinner, so I take time every day to be with Him. That's my prayer time. The first thing I do is repent of my sin because I want to be as close to God as I can be. I picked this habit up from Israel. That's one takeaway lesson from Israel's experience. The second thing to be aware of is that whatever affects our relationship with God also affects our relationship with people. Most of the time, we sin against God by sinning against each other. Whenever you sin against somebody else, your relationship with them cannot be healed until you repent. Why? Because their ability to forgive you is proportionate to the depth of which you repent to them. If you want healing in your relationship, and if you want to be close to each other again, the path to restoring that relationship is true repentance. The degree to which you own up to whatever you did yields the degree of freedom with which the other person can forgive you. Just like repentance is a pathway to God, it's also a pathway to each other. The last thing to remember is that we're talking about an unchanging, merciful God. He is thrilled every time we repent. We don't live forever guilty for our sins. That's not what God wants. He wants to restore us and call us back to Him. He didn't tell the Israelites, A, forget about it. The blood of the Lamb had to be offered because atonement had to be made. The fact that he even gave them a way to atone shows that he is a loving God. As you probably hopefully already know, we don't sacrifice lambs for our sins anymore. In the next chapter, we'll learn more about Isaiah and his prophecies, particularly his greatest prophecy, which foretold the arrival of someone who would deal with our sin once and for all. Headspace connect with God. The Bible describes a merciful God who wants to give us an out for our sins so we don't have to pay for them ourselves. Ephesians 2, 4 through 5 states, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Take some time to recognize the mercy God has shown you in life and thank him for it. Can you think of an area of sin in your life? connect with others. Think about the Ten Commandments again, or maybe just think through the way your conscience has convicted you. We all sin against other people and need to repent. Paul wrote a letter to the church in Colossae saying, bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Colossians 3.13 forgiving others is expected from God's followers because God has forgiven them and expects them to share that same love with others. Is there anyone whom you have sinned against and only made a truce with but haven't truly repented toward? Spend a few minutes asking God to bring to mind any relationship that needs repentance and ask for the courage to follow through. What does this mean for you? Isaiah 59, 1 says, Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear.
first of all, I think this is a really funny way of saying it because I just picture this huge arm that can reach miles. But that's actually the point. God can redeem absolutely anyone. No one is too far from God. The chapter goes on to say that those who repent of their sins will be redeemed by God. Do you feel that any of your sins are too big for God? Talk to him about it. He's not afraid of your baggage and his arm is not too short to save you. Read 1 John 1, 9 and think about how its truth might apply to you.